Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, and this is the ACR 2019 podcast. We're coming to you from the annual meeting in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode is a collection of our faculty reports, interviews, and panel discussions recorded live from the Room Now booth. I hope you enjoy and learn. Hi, I'm Chad Deal. I'm at uh, ACR 2019 in Atlanta. Just attended session on metabolic bone disease called Bad to the Bone. The session included uh, hyperparathyroidism, hypophosphatasia, and osteomalacia. And I want to just mention a few points on um, hypophosphatasia. It's of interest to rheumatologists who are interested in metabolic bone and fracture, and also rheumatologists because of its articular manifestations, specifically chondrocalcinosis, pseudogout, calcific periarthritis. The key to making this diagnosis is a low alkaline phosphatase, almost always less than 40, almost many times less than 30. That's the real key to making the diagnosis. Occasionally, you will need genetic studies. It's caused by a gene defect in uh, the gene that controls tissue nonspecific alkaline phosphatase. Patients may present as adults, which is where adult rheumatology comes in. Uh, and it's treatable because there's a new medication released in 2015 called Afotase Alpha or Strensic that's very effective for this medication. More information, please go to um, Room Now. Good afternoon, my name is uh, Dr. Guillermo Valenzuela. I'm a rheumatologist, clinical immunologist. I practice out of South Florida, precisely in the location of Plantation, which is close to Fort Lauderdale in Miami. And I um, uh, have the opportunity here today, and I thank uh, Room Now for allowing me the chance to share some of the thoughts I have about um, uh, one of the disease states that we are quite interested. Uh, traditionally, what made us rheumatologists, or historically made us rheumatologists, which is gout, uh, a uh, condition that is, I guess, uh, uh, coming back, I would say, because we have now more science about the understanding of what gout is and what, um, what, what, um, where gout is positioned in our whole um, diagnostic process in the patient, with, especially with polyarthritis and other conditions that are perhaps not symptomatically arthritic. So I won't be uh, spe speaking about a specific uh, poster, but there's some collective information that we're gathering here during this meeting that relate to the, um, the, the ways with which we can diagnose gout and therefore potentially help patients with this uh, diagnosis. We had a presentation uh, yesterday where we saw uh, the impact that uh, specialized imaging has in recognizing patients and helping make a differential diagnosis, especially the utilization of the uh, DECT or um, dual enhanced contrast uh, CT, uh, dual enhanced, I'm sorry, uh, uh, CT. So um, uh, that is one of the uh, uh, technologies that I would like to see uh, that in the future we have more available in order to help stratify patients and also to design clinical trials uh, with the hope of um, um, getting uh, more patients to be diagnosed in the early phase. And also I would like to make a point that uh, many of the cases we see uh, lately with, for example, seronegative uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, if we look back in the literature, we find a, a high uh, degree of association in those patients uh, with uh, gout that is subclinically diagnosed. Uh, models of, of synovial biopsies have demonstrated the presence of uh, micro um, uh, um, uh, tophites, the deposits in uh, spread out through the through the uh, 
synovium. So uh, I just remind you that patients with seronegative uh, arthritis as such always uh, think about gout, even if the serum uric acid levels uh, are not as high as we normally know. So this is one of the pearls that I, I like to use uh, in, in our clinical, in our practice with, with our doctors and with our, our students. Just remind about the importance of, of gout. Think about gout always in the differential diagnosis. Don't forget about gout. Gout is uh, uh, traditionally the condition that has made us uh, rheumatologists, that has made the, the specialty of rheumatology grow for, for years. So um, I in, encourage you to review the very many publications, especially the ones that relate to the, um, uh, the imaging related to gout diagnosis and, and how we can treat it. And just make sure you don't hesitate in treating patients you know, as aggressively as you can and, and have the same aggressive approach as we have when you treat rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis or for that matter, any other um, yeah, autoimmune condition. So uh, I think this is the time we have for now and I thank you very much and I thank uh, RoomNow for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk to you and just swing by the, uh, the booth here at RoomNow and um, well, have a good afternoon. Hi, I'm Paul Sufka, uh, coming to you from the Room Now booth at ACR 2019 in Atlanta. Um, I'd just like to talk about a couple abstracts that are pretty popular at this meeting regarding hand osteoarthritis. Uh, they're, they're numbered right next to each other. The first one is 1759. This is an abstract where patients uh, were tried, uh, patients with hand osteoarthritis were actually tried on low-dose methotrexate. Uh, for erosive hand osteoarthritis. It's a fairly small but randomized controlled trial. It lasted one year and the primary endpoint was a decrease in pain. Unfortunately, that endpoint was not met, but very interesting. Um, it did decrease progression of erosive and damage type changes in these hand uh, osteoarthritis patients. Um, so interesting study. There's a lot of things that we don't really have that we can offer these patients with hand osteoarthritis. So maybe this is something that we'd think about for some of these patients. The other abstract is 1760. Uh, this was a six week treatment with low dose prednisone uh, for the pain of, of hand osteoarthritis. So the thing that wasn't met in the prior abstract um, this was again a randomized controlled trial of 92 patients um, and very significant improvement in hand pain, um, which therefore improves function. Um, so, you know, between these two um, abstracts, maybe not something that you're going to offer all of your patients, but, uh, you know, if you discuss risks and benefits with your patients, maybe this is something that you'd like to offer. Thanks. Uh, for, new, for, for more information, go to roomnow.com. Hi, Jack Cush coming to you from the ACR booth here in Atlanta. The ACR 2019 meeting's been a great one. Saw a fine presentation by Dr. Dan Solomon Monday afternoon about the toxicity of methotrexate. His data was drawn from a very large trial that you're familiar with, the CIRT trial, C-I-R-T, published in the New England Journal last year. This is a trial of methotrexate, not in rheumatoids or arthritic patients, but in patients at risk for cardiovascular disease. So it was a trial that actually looked at whether or not methotrexate would lower the risk of cardiovascular events in patients who are at risk, diabetics, hypertensives, those who are obese. So they, in a high-risk population, they gave methotrexate or placebo, no other DMARDs or arthritis medicines, to see what would happen. As you know, the study was ended for futility. It did not work in preventing events, and maybe it, that didn't work because they did not require a high CRP to go into the trial. 
But there are a lot of offshoots of the CERT trial showing the efficacy of, of these drugs in other conditions, for instance. So one analysis is what the one I'm talking about here, and that is the toxicity of methotrexate. They enrolled, I think, 70, uh, 4786 patients, uh, almost 4,800 patients, uh, and again, treated half of them treated with methotrexate, half of them not. Doses that we usually use, 15, 16 milligrams a day, everybody on background folic acid. Uh, at the end of the 52-week study, about a 16%, 17% increase in mild um, adverse events, nothing really severe. There were actually serious adverse events were um, very, very few and not significant here. Um, the most common things that they saw were, as you would expect, GI toxicity and nausea and, and oral ulcerations and things like that. That was almost a doubling of the rate. Uh, pulmonary side effects was actually elevated. Infection was elevated, most of those being very minor infections, URIs as opposed to pneumonias, although pneumonias were up as well. Uh, a doubling of the rate of skin cancers. That included uh, basal cell melanoma and non-squamous cell cancers with an SIR, or hazard ratio of around two. So that's sort of um, something that's been out there before and this has confirmed it. If you're worried about the risk of pancytopenia, number one, use folic acid in everyone. Number two, know the data. The data says that it is increased with methotrexate, but it's a very, very low event rate. In the placebo population, it was three per thousand. Those on methotrexate, it was 13 per 100, giving you a hazard ratio of 2.1. So again, watch for it, but it is relatively rare. Pulmonary manifestations were mostly mild, uh, included a few cases of pneumonitis, but methotrexate-induced pneumonitis was rare. Seven cases per 100, actually 0.2 cases per 100 patient years, that's two per 1,000. It's a rare event. They only had seven cases in the whole study. The uh, other side effects to be worried about would be infections. They had mostly an increase in non-serious infections, mild URIs. Uh, skin uh, pneumonia was increased 26%, but it was not significant. Uh, and shingles, um, a slight increase in shingles as well, but again, not significant. So the bottom line here is in this trial, the drug was well tolerated, did very well. Uh, as far as safety, didn't work as, as far as cardiovascular outcomes. They had seven cases of possible methotrexate-induced pneumonitis. It's a very low event rate of, again, that's about two per 1,000 patient years. Um, a mild increase in infections, about 15%, a doubling of the risk of skin cancer. And the interesting thing was they did have cases of cirrhosis, very few, but guess what? Cirrhosis was only associated with mild to modest elevations of LFTs, not the big time elevations, which should bring you back to the original ACR guidelines on monitoring methotrexate, looking for a number of mild to moderate elevations, nine out of 12 over a year period, something along those lines that would then make you suspicious, work it up or discontinue the drug. Great presentations. The other presentation that Dr. Solomon has, I think it's today, it's a poster 2357 on the same subject. Again, that's it for this presentation on safety of methotrexate. Uh, tune in at yeah, 2357. Tune in for more videos here on Room Now. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a reporter at Room Now. We're at ACR 2019 in Atlanta. I wanted to talk a little bit about viral reactivation and vaccination and some posters that were presented at this meeting. 
So these are early days, preliminary results, but poster 2115 looked at whether there was viremia or reactivation of BK virus. The, the risk of VK virus is that it can be a slow virus that can potentially cause problems in the brain, leukoencephalopathy. So what they did early days, 56 patients with various inflammatory arthritis and connective tissue diseases, and they saw no difference in viremia, whether the patients by diagnosis, so no, no difference with lupus and RA versus, say, psoriatic, and no difference with the meds they were on steroids and DMARDs. Why is this important? Because corny virus, a, a cousin, gives um, leukoencephalopathy, and that has been shown by this group and others to be elevated in viremia in RA and lupus and not other diseases such as other inflammatory arthritis. And it was elevated in their old work, the corny virus with rituximab in particular. So at this point in time, we can rest assured that BK virus in the early days of looking at it doesn't seem to be a player of reactivation. The next thing is uh, number 2093, and that was looking at the safety of the non-live, so the, the killed vaccine uh, for varicella zoster called Shingrix. And they were looking at the safety with respect to flares uh, before you got the vaccine and after, so saying not will this vaccine work, that's a different question but will it cause a flare in my patients because there's a surge of gamma interferon when you get vaccinated? So they only had 47 patients, but so far by rapid three, they saw no change in flaring before or after the vaccine. So it's something that probably is indeed safe for our patients and you should use your country guidelines on when to vaccinate. Uh, that's it for Room Now, thank you.